Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Allies agree to give Ukraine more help as Kiev's offensive looms, including a Russian AN-124 transport aircraft stuck in Canada as Russia digs in and launches cyber attacks against America and Europe. Lockheed Martin reported first quarter earnings, deciding against going to court to stop the U.S. Army's award of the future long-range assault aircraft contract to Bell. What to expect from upcoming first quarter earnings? GD loses Land Systems market share to BAE Systems and Rheinmetall. SpaceX called its first Starship test launch a success, even though the largest and most powerful rocket ever exploded four minutes after liftoff. New leadership at Italian giant Leonardo and Bell. Joining us today, as they do every week, to look at all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to be on. Happy Sunday, all. Happy Sunday, uh, all uh, to you as well. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, everybody, great to have you back on again. Not, not a Sunday if it didn't include us all talking. Uh, Ron, start us off uh, broader markets and how they impacted the aerospace and defense group. Yeah, if you look at the S&P, the S&P was uh, essentially flat in the week. It was just down 10 basis points. Uh, Boeing was up uh, a little under uh, 2%, 1.7%. Spared Aerosystems was up about 8.5%, kind of recovering from last week. If you remember after the news broke about the um, the, the brackets on the tail right. of, the, of the MAX, both stocks got hit uh, on that. They recovered some this week, um, and then you know more broadly, I mean, you know, the group didn't move all that much. Which, as an example, Raytheon Technologies was up uh, about uh, half a percent. Northrop Grumman was essentially flat. Uh, Lockheed Martin uh, was up after reporting, and then ended the week down about a percent. Uh, when you look at some of the other things we track, uh, you know, oil prices haven't changed all that much. WTI seventy-eight, right. uh, Brent crude eighty-two. Uh, the ten-year yield is uh, a little over three and a half percent at three point six. Maybe the one thing that's you know, trended down below a level that's been for quite some time was the VIX index, that measure of volatility and fear and so on, so in the market. It was around sixteen and a half, uh, and uh, it's been in this range, probably good range between call it eighteen and twenty-five for a while. So it really kind of went to a lower level, suggesting that markets are maybe becoming a little more calm. Um, uh, at least they were last week. And this is why the U.S. debt drama is so worrying uh, to a lot of people. We're going to call this uh, the debt uh, ceiling watch. Um, what's uh, any any additional sort of market indicators, right? I mean, last week, um, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy put out his debt plan, uh, which would include sort of a one-year debt ceiling increase, but also rather deep spending cuts across government. The good news is there's a little bit of negotiation uh, that's going to happen, but it, any sort of change in how the market is perceiving how this drama is going to play out, seeing as how it was the market and a debt downgrade that drove the Budget Control Act last time around to solve the impasse. Yeah, nothing too dramatic in the equity markets. I don't think much at all. I, I think where you've seen a little bit of trading is in the short-dated uh, treasury market. 
you know, one month versus three month, uh, you know, there's, there's been some press about, you know, there's been some funny action there, but out, outside of that, not really Vago, not much at all. It's interesting how, how Wall Street doesn't pay attention until it feels like it has to pay attention and then sometimes overreacts because it sort of didn't pay attention maybe sooner. I love that uh, element, right? Markets are people. Uh, speaking of people, uh, over in Europe, uh, Sash, uh, give us a sense on, on uh, European uh, trading and how the group performed, and European drivers and how the group performed this week. Yeah, okay. I mean, the um, European markets were up about you know, three quarters of a percent uh, over the week. So it was, it was a you know, pretty good week overall in Europe. Interestingly, the defence stocks were up in line with the market, although there was a wild dispersion of returns this week. So at the very top end, Kinetic, which sort of um, brought forward its uh, trading statement by a whole day, um, they clearly had a you know very good end to their financial year. And um uh, and it just suggests that they they've got really quite a significant tailwind uh, developing uh, as they as they go into the next financial year. So they were up, they were up about seven percent. Um, on the downside, uh, Leonardo was off about uh, off over four percent. And I think one of the drivers of that. Um, I mean, some of the some of the other small mid cap defense stocks were also off. Saab was off about three and a half percent. But I think the you know the thing that dragged Leonardo down above all was the uh, change of management. Um, uh, Alessandro Profumo, the um, uh, chief executive who'd been in, in post for uh, nearly six years. And I think it, actually, it had actually done a very, very good job of um, normalizing uh, the, uh, the management of Leonardo. He finally fell um, victim to Italian politics. Um, I'm, I'm always, slight, well, I'm amused, but a bit distressed. Leonardo has a government shareholding that's just under 30%. Um, but there is a tendency in the company to refer to the Italian government as our shareholder, singular, i.e., you know, nobody else counts. Um, that was certainly right. the case this week. The Italian government decided to put forward a new, what they refer to as a new slate of directors from chairman uh, down to uh, chief executive. And when the Italian government does that, nobody else really has much of a, um, uh, you know, m- much of a look in on, on, on the process. So, Alessandro Profumo, um, you know, now moves on to other things, but I think, you know, with a, with a very, very good uh, reputation of the job he's done there. Um, and Roberto Cingolani, uh, who was formerly the sort of industry technology change minister um, in the Italian government, um, he becomes the new chief executive. It's quite a controversial choice. I mean, actually, he, he, he was the chief technology officer of Leonardo for a, for a couple right. of years. So it's not as if he doesn't know the company. Uh, but on the other hand, he's never actually run a company, and it's very different being a you know a minister uh, to being a chief executive. So um, there had been a hope that the former chief executive of MBDA Italy would would get the job, and he clearly does know how to, you know how to run a, uh, an Italian business because he's done it. But um, the Italian government decided um, that Tungolani was the is the right person for the job, and I think now part of the story for the rest of the year will be how does he adapt? How does he actually? Um, you know, you know what, how does he take uh, the company in a possibly different direction to Mr. Profumo? But I mean, overall, you know, it was a it was a good week for uh, for the markets. A couple of the, the civil stocks were up over four percent. Rolls Royce, Safran, um, and so you, you know, as we go into the Q1 results, and remember, Europe is always about three weeks behind the US in this regard. Um, there's you know, there's there's quite a lot of optimism in markets. 
Um, I want to uh, get to that, and we're going to talk about uh, Lockheed, uh, what to expect from the U.S. group, uh, as well as Airbus. Uh, I would say, right, Alessandro Profumo came from uh, one of the biggest, one of Europe's biggest banks. Uh, so even though he was not a defense and aerospace guy, he was somebody uh, who had successfully run a large enterprise. Uh, and you could argue uh, that uh, uh, Chingolani um, did spend time as CTO and as part of the, at, at Leonardo and part of the senior management yeah. team. Uh, so yeah. you, you could plausibly, you know, and, and also say that, you know, the, the company in particular also uh, is supported and driven particularly by its divisional CEOs who, who tend to be pretty good. The other thing is it does indicate a shift in strategy, doesn't it, for Leonardo? And I should note, right, Leonardo DRS is the majority. Leonardo is the majority shareholder in Leonardo DRS, obviously the U.S. company that sponsors us. Um, would you would you say that this is a, sh a shift in strategy, uh, Sash, as some uh, reporting has suggested more of a tilt towards cyber and more sort of, quote, future technologies, uh, even though you know, the bread and butter for the company still is uh, the work that it does in aerospace, radars, you know, electronics, weapons, right? I mean, it has an incredibly broad portfolio. I'm, I'm a, I, look, you know, perhaps I'm just a bit antediluvian. I'm always hugely skeptical about these sort of, uh, about this stuff about shifting in, uh, shift of focus towards cyber and so forth. Cyber, in my experience, has always disappointed investors because it's never ended up being quite anything like as big or as profitable or as fast growing as investors wanted and you're absolutely right the bread and butter of a um uh you know a multi-divisional defense company in europe as in the us is making stuff making stuff that flies sails or goes bang um and i don't think there's a great deal even that the italian government can do to change that uh, or even that uh mr Cingolani can do to change that um you know if you look at leonardo's uk business um, Celex, which is the UK de defense electronics champion and is, you know, effectively the leader of the whole defense electronics part of the uh, Tempest program. Um, you know, that is, that's on rails for, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 right. years. There's no, no amount of, of wishing by the Ital Italian government is going to put more cyber or, or whatever else it is into that. The, re the requirements of that are set by the partner governments and, you know, it, it's on its way. Um, let me ask you really quickly about uh, Babcock. Um, uh, obviously, the contractor that's been working very hard on the lower end, UK Navy Type 31 frigate, the export frigate, was looked to fill out the ranks of the Royal Navy, given the service decided not to go with an all Type 26 fleet. Charges on it, what does it mean, uh, especially given the structure of the contract, right? It was designed to move quickly uh, and, if I recall correctly, be on a fixed price basis, which means Babcock is the one eating these costs. Yeah, absolutely. Fixed price contracts have a fixed price. Who would have thought it? It's yes. quite a shock. <laughs> Not. Uh, El Supreme. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, it, type 20, type uh, 31 designed to be uh, or to have an average unit cost of 250 million sterling. That excludes quite a lot of government furnished equipment. But still, that's a, that's a low cost for a relatively well fully kitted out hull. Um, uh, and uh, Babcock have said that um, they've had had a thorough review of the program, and the extra costs are going to be between fifty and uh, fifty and hundred million. And that they have not been able to negotiate satisfactorily with the UK MED over who bears those costs. So they've now entered arbitration. Um, you know, one or the other side might might win, but they're going to take charge of fifty to hundred million. So twenty million a ship at the upper end of that, because uh, you know, in the event that they that they don't win the arbitration, what's fascinating is they did a thorough contract review um, about 18 months ago so what this tells us as you know as external observers and investors is that 
just in the last 15 months, not even 12, inflation has caused this 50 to 100 million overrun on a billion and a half uh, sterling program. That's inflation and it's MOD saying, you wear it, we don't. Um, uh, there aren't many other companies that have got as big a set of fixed price contracts uh, on their books, but it's, it's a pretty salutary lesson for everybody. Interestingly, Babcock ended the week slightly up, so this didn't come as a massive surprise to investors, uh, but it's still, it, you know, it's still a bit of a, a bit of an unpleasant reminder of the the, the inflationary impact in defence. Uh, interesting, uh, indeed, uh, Richard. You've been very uh, patient. Let's start us off, and Ron, I want to get your sense on it, uh, and then uh, Sash, uh, yours on what we should be expecting uh, from Airbus, and maybe all of us can take a bite uh, at this because uh, you guys at Agency have been doing some great work on what the expectations from Airbus is, Ron. Uh, so if you you guys talk, uh, Richard, start us off with Lockheed earnings, uh, certainly on the aeronautics side. Uh, right. Um, there was an expectation or, or a suspicion uh, that the company uh, that did take uh, the uh, uh, future long range assault aircraft lost pretty hard was going to uh, go to court uh, to stop the award. And they decided not to do that. They said that the government wouldn't accept their uh, investment, um, uh, you know, which was suspected as being buying into the program. The Army had said that, unfortunately, they felt that, that Sikorsky, irrespective of the cost, was not technically compliant uh, in their bid. Walk us through Lockheed earnings. What did you see that was interesting? And what do you see that indicates what it is we should be expecting from the other companies uh, that report? Ron, want to get your sense uh, on that uh, as well. Go ahead, start us off. Yeah. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it's hard to resist the conclusion that Lockheed Martin has become kind of a uh, poster child for inadequate bandwidth in the industry. You know, I mean, they do a great job. They sell products that people want. But in terms of uh, capacity, they've been geared up for a post-Cold War environment. Um, like any other money-making corporation, their objective was to cut capacity that wasn't needed ruthlessly. And as a consequence, they're having a heck of a time ramping up that plus, of course, uh, you know, various uh, program management concerns, both at the agency level and at the company level, to be fair. So no matter how many people want their products, boy, execution is a real issue. And of course, the headline was not even 150 F-35s this year, probably flat with, uh, I believe, 141 last year, maybe a couple more, but maybe not. Um, that's really a problem because everyone wants an F-35. As we said many times on this program, Vladimir Putin is easily the best salesman of all time for this. Most recently, about a week ago, Romania. I mean, Thailand, I think also about a week ago, everyone is piling up. And yet, if you look at that production horizon, if you if they get to 156 eventually, even then you, you see all these people who want, you know, a couple squadrons in service by 2028. And it's just like, yeah, you'll be lucky to get to a year. You know, it's just it's just inadequate bandwidth for again for something that people want. I think one big takeaway that people are gonna take from this is it's really important to have platform sovereignty. And we haven't seen this in many decades. The F-35, of course, was kind of a you know, Cold War era fighter when hey, you just buy your fighter off the shelf from some dude in Texas who supports it via some kind of centralized parts distribution system. That's really all you need. To, oh my God, we want fighters. We just can't get them fast enough. We better make our own. So whether it's Britain and Japan with Tempest or whether it's India with every conceivable fighter under the sun, South Korea, of course, Turkey, um, 
you know, and 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 even Taiwan rebirthing the Qingquo program, everybody has reached the conclusion that they need their own combat aircraft, certainly SCAF. I, more will undoubtedly join. I'd be surprised if Brazil and Saab don't keep working together on Greep and F and whatever else. So I think this, this sends an awfully big signal. The other interesting aspect, of course, is one key problem is missiles, Lorazim and, and, and Jasm, and of course, um, you know, likely AIM-260 and whatever else. There is a massive missile production surge, and given the short-term requirements for missiles for so many obvious reasons, whether it's turning, you know, whether it's supplying Ukraine, refilling U.S. and allied stocks, or whether it's turning Taiwan into a hedgehog, that's the priority. It might well be crowding out. Um, my favorite concept for the industry right now is crowding out just whatever the priority is there's not enough for the rest and missiles clearly take priority for so many reasons uh, so there are all kinds of big issues here um, looking at the situation but i think the outgrowth is going to be a lot more platforms moving forward and hopefully a return to more capacity and perhaps less of a kind of ruthless market market focused uh, vision of what's needed by way of industrial capacity. What, but what is required from governments to try to get us there, uh, Richard, right? I mean, um, we've heard, uh, you know, executives from all the companies say that there's been a little bit of a reluctance by the government to make the kind of commitments. We've talked about this on the program. It's not that BWXT doesn't necessarily want to make more reactors for the Navy. It wants to facilitize in a way that makes sense and has a degree of consistency to it, as opposed to two, two, maybe three. Okay, we'll do three for a year or two. Okay, wait a minute. You want us to facilitize for three, you know, for three of the 10 years. You know, I mean, what are some of the things the government can do? I mean, we can admit the government was a little bit slow getting off the dime to start putting some of these orders in, right? It's been a year into this war, and all of a sudden, the big orders are, are starting to come, uh, even though there was a lot of activity in the background. That's not entirely fair. But again, we're seeing a needle move-ish relatively recently. What are the things government can do to be able to address that, all of the dynamics that you're talking about? And Ron, I, I didn't expect necessarily to go there, but that's the logical follow-up. Uh, I'll I'm, I'm come over to you in, in a second. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it's a very fair question. And, and of course, uh, you know, not all of this is due to a, a ruthless focus on equities markets and leanness. A lot of it is due to, you know, a, a rather lax government industrial policy, which is which is kind of funny, you know, back up right now for the past few years, the biggest issue in the U.S. government has been a return to industrial policy. And that is true in Europe as well. Uh, picking winners, funding very heavily, whether it's green, whether it's semiconductors, even green aerospace. It's just that we haven't really seen that filter down to the defense side yet. I suspect we will more. Um, you saw a little bit of it during the COVID era when you had accelerated payments to tier two and three contractors that were under stress. I think we need to see the same emphasis on industrial policy that we're seeing in the government view of the commercial world extended to the government view of the defense world. Um, a willingness to say, hey, this doesn't mean jobs immediately. This doesn't produce a political constituency. This doesn't produce weapons. But spending money on keeping even idle industrial capacity serves a purpose. I'd love to see a return to that kind of, of thinking. When, of course, things throttle down a bit, we don't have the, the current, oh my God, fund everything, <laughs> get it going at full rate again. I think we need to see more of a return to looking at all levels of the supply chain, all the weak links and vulnerabilities. I think we might have gotten a little bit uh, 
shall we say, um, lax about uh, about her approach to to the supply chain uh, here. Uh, I, I I would I would agree with you, right? I mean, at at some point, uh, things that made sense 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago may not make sense uh, today, and unfortunately, we've been on on autopilot, right? I mean, we have had a couple of exchanges about that about China, right? Academic partnership ideas that worked well in the you know early 2000s you know 2010s all of a sudden look a lot less uh, attractive today uh ron let me bring you in on lockheed earnings but also what your guys expectations are that we're going to be hearing from the group uh as they uh report right i mean we've sort of bounded and discussed uh, obviously boeing's challenges uh we've talked a little bit about spirit error systems another important person important firm in the ecosystem kind of give us your sense on lockheed earnings what you saw that was interesting in there and what is it we should expect from the group? Yeah, I think for us, probably the biggest surprise was uh, Lockheed's book to bill in the quarter was uh, 0.7. Because uh, we started to see order activity for everything you were talking about really started to pick up uh, over the last couple of months. So we were you know, thinking, eh, you know, maybe you'd see a better book to bill. Uh, I think the read across to the industry is book to bill may not be where um, uh, folks might have thought it would be. Uh, that being said, broadly, expectations for defense um, aren't all that high right now. Uh, you know, defense companies have actually gone through several quarters of not really making numbers. Things have been kind of squishy. It's been supply chain or this or that, and and I, I think that extends into this quarter. Um, broadly, when you look at at Lockheed's numbers in the quarter. Uh, you know, aer aeronautics was lower on F-35 volume, you know, as, as uh, you know, Richard talked about. Uh, margins in missiles and fire control were, were, were pretty good. Uh, their rotary uh, and uh, mission systems business uh, was down uh, because Sikorsky volumes were down, which sort of begged the question, you know, where does Sikorsky go to from here? And ultimately what, what happens? Uh, and then their space business actually had some really nice tailwinds. It had a uh, uh, you know, mid-teens growth in the quarter. So, I mean, I think on balance, you know, the market was was fine with it. That's why the stock traded up. Uh, and then you saw just sort of, I think, broader market dynamics, you know, bring the stock down a bit uh, for the week. But, you know, as we look across other defense guys, like I said, I, I don't think expectations are all that high. And, uh, and uh, it, it's really kind of all about the outlook. Where's it going? What's it going to look like in the second half of the year? What's it going to look like in 2024? And, and, and that sort of thing. And then I don't, I would say that, you know, the market is assuming um, back to your initial question on, you know, kind of debt ceiling stuff that ultimately we do get a budget uh, that, you know, we don't have a full year CR. We don't have a debt default and we get a budget that factors in, uh, you know, most likely, uh, low single-digit real growth. Um, uh, so we'll see. I mean, so there's a lot of things floating right. around. Uh, but there hasn't been a lot of investor inquiry on you know, what the budget's going to do and where the budget's going to go. And then, and then finally, on the point on you know, kind of what has to be done uh, in terms of industrial policy and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. You started to see a bit of it this year, more multi-year contracts for a lot of things. Because right. multi-year contracts are just easier to plan around. I mean, not just multi-years for, you know, you know, product X, Y, or Z, but now you're starting to see it with missiles and so on and so forth. And that just makes sense. So, so more of that. And then, you know, you could talk about this probably for hours, just realistically planning for, uh, you know, a war and a half or two war scenario and, 
know, and that kind of thing. And then, and this would probably be the more controversial thing I'll, I'll say here is, you know, I, I think industrial policy hasn't been, I mean, for defense industrial policy, probably for the better part of the last decade really hasn't been the strong suit of the DOD. I mean, they've been doing other things, but, um, right. you know, kind of to Richard's point that, you know, having maybe a, a more, you know, uh, hands-on industrial policy, you know, pushing things in the right direction with what is needed now might be the right thing to do. Uh, and I, th- I think we're seeing reflect- reflected, right? I mean, we had uh, Andrew uh, uh, Hunter uh, on recently and a lot of discussion that the government is going to play a central role, uh, for example, in, in the next generation air dominance uh, aircraft. Um, I would also uh, suggest to our audience to check out our interview on the Air Power podcast last week uh, with uh, J.J. Gertler, where we talked to uh, the chairman of the Airland uh, subcommittee, uh, the Virginia Republican Rob Whitman, a uh, real bipartisan and very thoughtful member, who said, listen, given where we are, Congress is not going to be able to make that much more money available for the department. Uh, so we are going to have to make trade-offs. We're going to have to invest more and shift more to unmanned systems, uh, for example. So I commend uh, everybody to check out that interview, which is a great opportunity for me to remind the audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space, our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler and our new technology report every Wednesday where we cover, hosted by me, uh, that takes a look at all kinds of technology from uh, cyber, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, all the way to hypersonics uh, and more. Sash, you've been very patient. I want to bring you back in the conversation. You guys are looking forward to Airbus uh, and where uh, it's uh, going what are your expectations for not just Airbus and maybe everybody uh, on the group can take a bite at this Apple uh, uh, because we have been a little bit skeptical that they're going to make any of uh, their ramp uh, predictions. Uh, walk us through your guys' research on this. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, we, we published a, a note at the end of last week, um, which is just entitled Losing Confidence in the Ramp. Um, nothing we saw in the Q1 deliveries, and remember, yeah, Airbus announces Q1 deliveries month by month, but uh, it only reports the, the Q1 uh, financials uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but nothing we saw in the deliveries suggests to us that the production ramp that Airbus has been talking about since uh, May of last year, um, and you, you know, which has this very, very big, audacious target of producing 75 A320s a month by originally 2025 and now 2026. Nothing we see in the figures suggests they're getting there. Um, and actually, if anything, you know, the company is flat in, in terms of overall deliveries, A320s, A350s, 330s, A220s, the company is flatlining, um, which suggests to us that there are just much more systemic problems with uh, the, the entire production system, the entire production ecosystem um, than Airbus is prepared to acknowledge at the moment. So, you know, here, I mean, here's a, um, uh, you know, a couple of statistics. Um, Q1 uh, deliveries was only 18% of the uh, planned total for the full year of about 720 aircraft. Um, that's, you know, one of the five lowest in uh, the last decade and a half. Um, it, and when you look at the sort of the rolling average, 12-month rolling average of production uh, for Airbus, actually, there's been no move in that since um, 
uh, March of uh, March of 2021. It's knocking along at a you know an average of about 45, 40, 46 aircraft a month. Um, they're supposed to be doing 55 A320s a month alone, and then two, three, four other um, other aircraft of each of the other models. So, you know, what's going to happen? Um, I think they're going to have a very difficult Q1 because they, there's going to be quite a big cash outflow. The reason for that being they just didn't deliver very many A350s. Um, this time a year ago, they'd uh, delivered uh, 15 A3, or 16 A350s, and this quarter they delivered five. Um, but probably more importantly, I think they're going to come under pressure just to, to say why or whether the, uh, the production ramp targets are still there. We think that really the company is putting their, all their bets now on Q2. If they can't get April, May, June, numbers up very, very materially, then they probably need to um, uh, you know, face, face the facts and bring their fully deliveries targets and probably financial targets down at the time of the H1 results. So actually that's going to make Q1 results interesting. It's going to make the Paris airship in June pretty interesting because I think everybody's going to be saying to them, their customers are going to be saying, look, you are telling us you're going to deliver aircraft in uh, second half of 2023, 2024, but you're clearly not, and your numbers say you're not. So um, uh, I think Airbus is going to be under a lot of pressure in the next couple of months. And, uh, it, it, you know, if they can't sort things out, and we don't think their watchtower system for looking at subcontractors actually works very well, when the problem's becoming more diffuse, if they can't do that, then they're probably going to deliver no more aircraft than last year, maybe even a few fewer. Um, and that's the sort of message coming out of the, this up cycle at the moment, is that it's not very up. Richard, I want to uh, bring you in on this and Ron, uh, get your uh, guys' take uh, on Airbus and, and what your expectations are and whether that tracks uh, with what uh, Sash uh, just told us. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, obviously, complete agreement. Sash has got great visibility there and it sure isn't looking like a, a very effective ramp. You know, And again, there are big macro questions here about just to what extent have we reached, uh, hopefully temporarily, the limits of growth here in our industry because... Again, there's sort of the top of the pecking order, which is missiles and munitions filtering down to combat aircraft. And then finally, when the time you got commercial aerospace, there's not a lot of slack in the supply chain to allow for much of a ramp. You know, I mean, hopefully a lot of this is related to, you know, the uh, the problems, especially in the second and third tier during the pandemic and in the aftermath. And, and a lot of people, a lot of this, it just comes down to people. And hopefully there'll be you know, some additional capacity freed up in the coming months, uh, you know, some kind of soft landing in the economy would certainly help a great deal. But in for the next, uh, next, well, probably eight to 12 to 18 months, it doesn't look like we're going to see a whole lot of growth here across the board. And it's not like Boeing is pressuring Airbus because, of course, Boeing is doing nothing great in output either. We just seem to have reached, again, hopefully temporarily, the limits of growth. And, you know, it comes back to my favorite sort of macro view. Mohamed um, El Arian, the you know, of Allianz, wrote a terrific piece in Foreign Affairs. And he said there are some big changes in the world economy. And one of the, the top uh, changes he identified was that for the first time, really since uh, World War II, the problem of today's economy is, is not inadequate demand, it is suddenly inadequate supply, again, for the first time in many decades. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the phenomenon that Air, the, of Airbus that, uh, that Sash was talking about. Yeah, so Bago, you know, looking at looking at Airbus from, from my point of view, um, and it's kind of through Boeing's glasses, if you will, uh, you know, Airbus and Boeing share a supply chain that's got about 80% overlap, 
Right. So many of the challenges that uh, Boeing has seen, Airbus has seen, and see, and vice versa. Um, and you know, there's, I think, as Sash pointed out, I mean, there are diffuse issues in the supply chain. But you know, one that was pointed out to me this week is bearings. Um, that you know, the order activity on some bearings is going out um, a long way, like a hundred weeks. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that just doesn't make anything any any easier, right? So. Um, it's it's all about you know managing the supply chain and materials, labor, and then what we saw specifically on the Boeing side last week was even execution in the supply chain on things that you would maybe have assumed were okay. Uh, I I think it's uh, hilarious and almost like out of a comedy sketch, right? It's all about ball bearings, right? And that's what it kind of boils down to. It's about bearings. Without bearings, you got a lot of friction. But I'm bum. I'm here all week. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Sash, uh, let me just uh, quickly uh, ask you about your colleague uh, and our mutual friend, Nick Cunningham's uh, excellent uh, assessment. Uh, I have just two war-related uh, questions uh, to ask you. And one is uh, Nick's work uh, that General Dynamics is actually losing market share uh, in a fairly persistent manner uh, to BA Systems and to Ryan Metal. Walk us through, because everybody's sort of expectation is that General Dynamics is, you know, an extremely well-run company, which, which it is, is in some very good uh, market positions. Uh, and yet we have this sort of underlying structural shift in di dynamic. Walk us through uh, what this means, given especially, you know, we've been talking on this program, Ryan Metal has been on a roll, but so is BAE Systems uh, as as well, given it's in the ammunition business. Walk us through. The work my colleague Nick has, has been doing uh, came as a surprise to us, actually, because we were just trying to compare the backlogs of the, the three big land systems, Primes, uh, General Dynamics, Combat Division, uh, Rheinmetall Defense, BA Systems, Platform, uh, Platforms and uh, Services Divisions. And what became very apparent from this was that the, the big increases in backlogs had occurred at BA in Ramtal. Um, you know, roughly since since 2019, uh, BA's backlog in um, which is largely armored vehicles and some extent ammunition uh, has gone up from seven billion to ten billion. Rheinmetall's has gone up from ten billion to sixteen billion, but General Dynamics has come down from sixteen billion to thirteen billion. Um, and yet, if you look at the revenues of these um, uh, companies. Rheinmetall's revenues uh, 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 have gone up very, very substantially. They were in the sort of uh, quarterly one, uh, one to one and a half billion uh, per quarter, but they've gone up to about two billion in the last quarter. General Dynamics have gone up as well. BAEs are starting to rise to about 1.2 billion, and they are, you know, pretty confident of, of increasing that. So what's our conclusion? I mean, our conclusion is that General Dynamics is delivering the sales growth largely through eating its backlog, but they're not replenishing the backlog. And they're not replenishing the backlog because they're losing share, probably particularly in Europe, to Rheinmetall and BAE. Look at the big infantry fighting vehicle competitions that have occurred recently. Um, uh, you know, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia. Hungary won by Rheinmetall, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, both by BAE's CB90. Um, yeah, GD has done very well um, selling the uh, M1 to Poland, but uh, so is Korea. Um, and, you know, the, the poles have split their buy there. We do wonder whether in infantry fighting vehicles in particular, um, GD is just hampered by the fact that the, the UK Ajax program has gone so badly that it's, it's really quite hard for GD to market that vehicle or a variant of it to other European customers. If only because the British, uh, the British Army won't, won't say it's a very good vehicle because they can't. So, you know, it's very interesting when you see a war 
which is clearly very supportive of demand for armored vehicles, artillery, ammunition. So, you know, old fashioned Cold War stuff is what some people describe it as. And yet um, it's not benefiting the, th the three primes in the same way. One of them is seems to us to be doing materially less well. Good news is our Canadian friends look like they're going to send uh, that Russian AN-124 that was impounded in Canada uh, over to uh, Kiev. Um, but sort of more broadly, we have uh, reports of uh, Russian uh, cyber attacks on the United States, but as well as uh, Europe. I think the European Safety Agency got hit last week. And then there was the Danish TV piece that uh, the, the extent of Russian undersea and sea surface uh, espionage and menacing behavior uh, that's uh, going on. Indeed, you know, just a month or so after uh, what appear to be erroneous reports that the Ukrainians were behind uh, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline attack, it looks increasingly clear that actually the Russians, after all, may have been after that. And uh, Danish TV revealing Admiral Vladimirsky, uh, the Russian spy ship, has taken an interest in wind farm, undersea pipelines and cables, training exercises and what have you. I mean, there might even be a Russian fishing uh, trawler uh, that's been involved in some of these activities. Kel Surprise, uh, again, right? I mean, during the Cold War, AGI's uh, uh, intelligence gathering ships uh, were a standard feature uh, of, of the Cold War duo, uh, duel. What are folks, how is this changing how folks are thinking uh, about that space and what are the market implications of it, Sash, from a European perspective? Look, from a European perspective, the, uh, the attack on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline clearly affected Germany, um, but was, you know, there, were, there was a great deal of sort of, I would say, political confusion, and arguably, um, uh, you know, European politicians were, uh, were poor at uh, coming together on, a, on an agreed line to take on that. Um, and there was a lot of dis, um, disinformation put around, in particular, because it took so long to, to decide what had happened uh, to Nord Stream 2. So I don't think that's covered European governments with, with a great deal of um, uh, credit there. There is beginning to be uh, an awareness, but as always in Europe, it's very, very patchy um, uh, that the, uh, you know, the Russians are conducting parallel um, grey area, grey zone operations outside of the, you know, the direct combat zone in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and I think that in the UK, there's, um, there's been quite a wake up call as the Royal Navy has started being very aware of, as you say, where these AGIs are, where the uh, undersea surveillance um, ships have been uh, going around the North Sea and, and the risk to uh, telephone cables. The problem is that we have a very non-hardened set of commu communications and power utilities uh, in the UK, indeed in, in most of Europe, and therefore um, a, a small act can have a remarkably big effect in terms of the, the disruption it causes to civil society. Uh, and hardening society and hardening the utilities um, is, uh, you know, that's a multi-year, probably a multi-decade process because we just simply aren't used to that anymore. Uh, paradoxically, cyber is arguably far easier to deal with. And I, I you know, I'm aware of the, you, you know, what, what a paradox that is. Um, it's very known how cyber attacks occur and governments have spent you know, enough on uh, cyber operation centers in the last 10 years or so to be much better at, if not defending those, at least identifying who the actors are and hence uh, being able to, uh, in many cases, deter them. And I think the surprise from the Ukraine war has been how poor Russian cyber attacks have been against the rest of Europe, 
relative to what we, we feared before the, the war started. Uh, and, and Russia obviously has a very fast force to do this with, whether conventionally powered submarines, nuclear powered submarines, surface vessels, uh, and of course, a whole bunch of other clandestine ships, right? Fishing trawlers, they may not really, I mean, they are fishing trawlers, but they also have ulterior uh, purposes uh, and, and, um, and motives uh, as we are uh, learning. Um, Richard and Ron, anything you guys want to add uh, to this point and what it means from a market standpoint, given that a lot of actually on undersea infrastructure, there's a lot of, you know, some of the most highly classified stuff we have is surrounds uh, anything that deals with, uh, you know, undersea, deep undersea and, and, and seafloor. But anything you guys want to add to this before we go to uh, space symposium, and SpaceX and wrap it up? Yeah, I mean, there is the concern, of course, that the necessary defenses against this threat uh, take away resources from other, well, badly needed areas of defense, whether it's missiles or platforms, because this sort of thing tends to you know, fly. I, I think there's been a level of complacency for about 12 months because the Russians didn't unleash much of anything. And uh, th there was all this talk about ramping up spending on cyber, but it hasn't happened that much. Maybe it's the new priority. Maybe it becomes the new hypersonics. And of course, there's also the risk that the Russians actually believe their own nonsense about a proxy war that's been getting traction among the, uh, shall we say, the, the small but not unnoticeable part of the American body politics. That's basically pro-Putin. That's scary as hell um, that they actually believe that. As somebody whose father-in-law spent uh, a few years being, uh, you know, dodging Russian SAMs over Vietnam, this is kind of the way it works. It's not a proxy war. It's <laughs> the enemy of my enemy, and you arm them, or something along those lines. Or you just want to defend somebody that you believe needs defending with missiles or you know with weaponry of any kind. Uh, so. I guess I'm concerned about this lowering the barriers to threshold for conflict is what I'm saying. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, interesting indeed, even though we've seen an increase in uh, the amount of spending on some of this stuff, proportionately, you can, you know, it, it, as to Sasha's point, right? Cyber is a big market, but it's a lot of little tranches that are spread in different places uh, and, and certainly has not over the past several decades sort of emerged as that sort of gigantic market people expect it to, whereas hypersonics, actually, if we start to actually order stuff, becomes a bigger market. Ron, uh, anything you want to add and, and agree with you on the political sentiment side of uh, things as well, uh, Richard? Ron, is there anything you want to add to this uh, part of it before we really go to SpaceX and wrap it up for the week? Uh, not not much. Just reiterate that point on cyber. I mean, you know, we've been you know dealing with companies that have talked about cyber businesses for a very long time, and it's it's very hard to put your hands around, and, and and then there's all kinds of things where you know defense cyber is separate from commercial cyber, and so on and so forth, and then how you define cyber, and you know so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, cyber's been I think for many investors kind of a frustrating thing because it just really hasn't been. Um, uh, it's kind of nebulous and just hasn't really played out how folks thought it would be. It's not that easy to invest in, as at least as a public equity investor. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, SpaceX. Uh, obviously, an incredible uh, accomplishment with a rocket that was reminiscent of the N, uh, the Soviet N1 uh, moon uh, booster, right? 33 uh, engines, methane-powered, uh, methane and liquid oxygen engines. Um, most uh, biggest rocket ever, nearly 400 feet, uh, and certainly the most powerful at something like 17 million pounds of thrust. Uh, unfortunately, the, the flight failed four minutes uh, into launch, uh, and it looks like some of it could have been for want of investment in a flame diverter, which is absolutely integral, as well as a water deluge system that attenuates 
uh, not just cools the pad and the uh, flame uh, diverter, but also attenuates the sound vibrations. And so it would be awful to see a great uh, first launch sullied by for want of a little bit of investment to have made it uh, successful, even though this is supposed to be a bargain rocket at about 100 million uh, bucks a piece to get 150,000 pounds uh, of payload into orbit, which is uh, dramatic. Kind of walk us through uh, what um, kind of what happened uh, from, from your standpoint. Actually, it's a lot more than, uh, excuse me, um, 150,000 pounds, right? It's closer to 300,000 pounds. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have all the details on you know, why they had to do what they had to do. Um, I think from their point of view, they could just get it off the ground, which they did. It was was viewed as a success. Uh, when you when you look at the system, like as you pointed out, it's just enormous. I mean, it's got the equivalent of uh, about a hundred uh, Merlin engines, and the Falcon Nine has nine, right? So it seems as powerful as ten Falcon, no more than ten Falcon Nines. Um, and it, I would say the bigger debate that has come up, uh, I would say, in the space community, is it's really big. It carries a lot of cargo. And almost an A380-esque kind of conversation. Can you fill right. it? How often can you fill it? Um, and, 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 and that sort of thing. And, and on that, we'll, I think we'll just have to kind of wait and see. I mean, there's folks that fall on both sides of that. Um, it's also been slated for, you know, seen as by NASA as important for the moon mission. Um, SpaceX themselves wants to go to Mars and refuel this in space. Uh, so it's been, you know, targeted at, you know, a whole various dispersed group of missions but you know, right. the, the question that i've fielded the most is wow this is really big will this will this destroy the economics of the launch market for other players and i think the answer is probably not because you have so much going in one you know vehicle to like one spot and it, you know there's a lot of reasons why you might want to do something smaller um and you know that, and i think that's kind of kind of where we are um do 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 i doubt that they'll just you know work everything out no i don't think anybody does um, but it all comes back to sort of the business case for this thing um, and and how they're thinking about that. Well, well, I mean, right. I mean, SpaceX will tell you we can put cartridges of Starlinks and actually with one flight put more Starlinks in orbit uh, than we're doing with uh, a Falcon 9 or different sorts of reconnaissance, you know, different sorts of, of space payloads. Uh, and so that's going to be uh, interesting to, to see. I mean, again, a technological triumph. You were a great segment on CNBC, by the way, where you said like, you know, I mean, it was a success because each one of these, you know, it did something incredible, which is clear of the tower. It didn't blow up there uh, and they'll learn lessons. And again, it's at a price point where it's a billion dollar failure, uh, right? Um, which is, again, SpaceX trying to change uh, the economics of this. One but, very but, last, but uh, Bogdan, what's, what, what's fascinating about this, just to put it in perspective, for folks that haven't sure. followed it that closely, one starship can put all the satellites in orbit that were put in orbit in 2020 and have room for more. The entire year can be put in right. one, one launch. That's how big it is. <laughs> it's huge. It's, it's, it's huge. It is huge. Um, and I uh, also want to note uh, that uh, Textron has announced that Lisa Atherton is going to become the next CEO uh, at uh, Bell, obviously our sponsor of this program. Mitch Snyder uh, held the job uh, for uh, enough time to actually 
structurally changed the company. Lisa was part of the team uh, that did that uh, as well. There was uh, those who, ex who thought that uh, Mitch could uh, succeed uh, Scott Donnelly at Textron. That's uh, obviously not going to be the case. Uh, Richard, why don't you give us kind of a, a quick uh, appraisal of uh, Mitch's extraordinary tenure uh, and what the audience should know about Lisa, uh, another very qualified uh, person who takes the reins at Bell. Yeah, I think it's pretty impressive. You know, you'll look back the rejuvenation of the product line. It, it was no means foreordained that the 525 would survive. It seems to have survived so far. Anyway, the 505 has been very impressive as a new product, referring them to the 206 market space they were at. But most of all, of course, V280. And with the Lockheed Martin uh, news this week was also the announcement um, from the GAO, I believe, that basically not only did the 280 succeed uh, technically, but it also had roughly twice the price of, of the um, the co compound coax solution that was promoted by Lockheed Martin Sikorsky. So basically, Bell really did have the winning mousetrap on so many levels, and that gives them a much brighter future than they had just a few years ago. Oh, Ron, totally forgot. Space Symposium. Give us a quick uh, takeaway. Laura Winter uh, of the Downlink is going to join us on tomorrow's program to give us sort of her perspective. Give us some of your key takeaways, uh, given yeah. you were there for the conference. Yeah, it's funny from you know an equity investor point of view, it's probably the world's greatest secret. Um, you know, not not many folks were there uh, from from my world, and every company's there. And in fact, there was record attendance this year. Kind of heard numbers of well over ten thousand folks were there. So. You put 10,000 folks going to our conference in Colorado Springs and there was no rental cars or hotel rooms or anything, right? So it was it was pretty packed. But I would say the biggest takeaways were, one, the, the, the you know, commercial space is alive and well, and it's, and it's part of the solution of changing the space architecture, moving from these exquisite assets that are also pointed out, exquisite targets, to a more distributed system. So right. uh, and that, that, that was kind of a big theme there. Uh, pretty much most of the companies we talked to that were at least private in nature discussed or you know, kind of new public companies that raising capital in the current market is difficult and that's it's difficult for everybody. That's something that, that that's something to watch. Um, the, you know, the, this, the architecture continues to shift, like I mentioned. Um, and I think this is an interesting point, at least from an investor point of view, that profitability, and getting you know to a business model that's not just a PowerPoint, um, but to something that actually does generate some cash is not lost on folks in the commercial space market. And you'll start to see some of these newer companies in the next year or so generating cash, generating positive EBITDA and so on and so forth that 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 wasn't wasn't lost there. But you know, it was a very, very productive event. Uh, we met with a lot of a lot of folks there and uh, I would suggest anybody who's interested in space markets spend time there next year. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have uh, a great uh, weekend, a great week, and see you back again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And thanks very much to the audience. And thanks to Bell for their very generous uh, sponsorship that makes this program possible. Each week, we'll see you again tomorrow on the program. Have a great day.